0: Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. It doesn't really matter who you are, leadership is or will be an issue in your life at some point, if it isn't already. If not in business, then in social life, or at the very least, in your family. While leadership ability is a tremendous strength, the lack of leadership ability is often a tremendous weakness. What's worse is that we've been living in good times, at least for the last 30 years or so. When times are good, you can do almost anything and benefit. This often leads people to think, that their success is the result of their unique ability. But then times change, success disappears, and everyone is left standing around wondering what happened while the truly capable people continue on along their merry way. As Warren Buffett famously said, you always find out who is skinny dipping when the tide goes out. This has led to a culture and a society where poor leadership abounds, but because it hasn't come with any consequences, most poor leaders fail to recognize that they are, in fact, poor leaders. And even worse, we'll cite their unknowingly poor leadership as the reason why their organization is so successful. You may not realize it yet, but things are about to become much worse. We've devalued money, a double-barreled real estate collapse, mass corporate layoffs, and all at the same time. This means we will no longer have good times to cover over a multitude of sins. That means that, in the very near future, you're going to have to actually be good to survive. One of the areas where you will need to be good, and probably the most foundational, is in the area of leadership. You need to lead your business, lead your patients, and lead your family, just to name a few. That means that if we're going to survive tomorrow, we will need to develop genuine skill. That means we need to have an understanding of leadership for tomorrow. Simon Sinek tells the story of a young man named Noah. This young man sells coffee at the Four Seasons in Las Vegas. Simon asked Noah if he liked his job. Noah responded that he loved his job. Never satisfied with a simple answer, Simon asked him why he loved his job. Noah said that multiple times through the day, a manager would come by and ask him if there was anything they could do or get him that would enable him to do his job better. And not just his manager, but any manager. And then came the kicker. Noah then told Simon that he also worked at Caesar's Palace, but he hated that job. Same guy working the same job in two different places. He loves one job and hates the other. Why do you hate the other job, Simon asked. Because there, the managers walk around looking to catch us doing something wrong so they can correct us. Upon hearing this story, I immediately thought of the university experience. Yes, I do still teach at a university, so I don't wanna get myself into trouble here. But this is not a criticism, as I don't think there's any school that is an exception to this, but it's more of a cultural observation. Actually, it's an observation based on Simon Sinek's observation. If you asked a university president who their primary concern was, I'm sure they all would tell you that their primary concern is their students. But that's not really true. When was the last time a college president actually interacted with a student in a learning environment. Actually, I know one of them who does, but he's certainly the exception. The point of Simon Sinek's story, as it often is, is that Noah is a millennial, and how he has interactions has a huge effect on his job satisfaction. As such, Simon makes several very important points about millennials and how this impacts leadership for the future. One of Simon Sinek's first points is that we have taught selfishness for many years. The problem is that it worked because times were good and there was plenty. It's like someone opened a treasure chest and it's every man for himself. When you don't have to earn it and you just have to grab it, then character doesn't matter much. In fact, almost nothing matters. Think about this for a second. In 1980, Terry Bradshaw, as quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers, got a $140,000 raise to bring his annual salary to $329,000. The Steelers won the Super Bowl the previous two years and Bradshaw was widely regarded as the best quarterback on the best team at that time. For a fair comparison, I tried to find out how much the Steelers were worth in 1980, but I couldn't find it anywhere. If I compare them to the 2018 Steelers, their highest-paid player, also a quarterback, was Ben Roethlisberger at $21.85 million per year. At that same time, Antonio Brown was making $19 million and Le'Veon Bell was making $12.12 million. Now, I don't know how much revenue the Steelers made that year, but I do know this. It was reported that when the Steelers offered Le'Veon Bell a contract for $14 million per season for five seasons, he turned down the offer because the team's prior obligations would prevent them from being able to pay him the desired amount. The point being that there was an income explosion where teams had to pay players way more money without a proportional increase in the income of the franchise. This put businesses in a tenuous position, but of course, The employees don't care. They're not worried about where they will make money five years from now. They're only worried about how they can make as much money as possible right now. This kind of selfishness is built into the system, and you can see it everywhere. In chiropractic, I hear students asking how they're supposed to get a job with a livable wage, while the owners are saying, how can I pay them that much money when they don't bring enough to the table to justify paying them that much? There's no right and wrong, but this is a huge problem and it's created by bad economics. If that isn't good enough good news, I suspect the problem will get worse before it gets better. Simon Sinek suggests that we need to teach cooperation instead of selfishness. Cooperation recognizes that we can build something together, and the payoff will occur somewhere down the road, while selfishness says, I want the payoff now, or I'm not playing. The concern that Simon Sinek points out is that Gen Z is least equipped to succeed in our current environment, This is because their greatest weakness is their impatience, and it's their impatience that's often mistaken for entitlement. This concept of generational impatience really got me thinking about how we build skills. The skills worth building cannot be acquired in a day. In fact, probably the greatest predictor of building skills, like adjusting skills, is a combination of patience and perseverance. You have to have the patience to endure failure, and the perseverance to continue pursuing the ideal. That might seem obvious, but it's a rare commodity, especially in certain generations. So the question Simon Sinek was posing is how do we lead people when we can't relate to them? I do want to address that question, but I first want to look more at the process of learning to adjust. The first step toward learning to lead others is learning to lead yourself. Your success at learning to adjust is a product of your ability to lead yourself. One thing that makes a good leader is the ability to accurately assess the situation and then determine the appropriate destination. One of the common mistakes that students make is to judge the quality of their adjustment based on the cavitation that's made. If you don't correct this problem, you'll fall into a logical fallacy of thinking that better adjustments have more noise and worse adjustments have less noise. I'm not speaking entirely to the Gonstead audience here. This is a generalization that I see in all of chiropractic. We see this false thinking on full display on YouTube, and I'm sure you've had patients who verbalize this false idea as though they thought they know something more about chiropractic than all your other patients. The thought is very, per- very pervasive and persuasive, but it's still false. I often tell my patients that swollen joints don't make as much noise, but often offer the greatest amount of relief. To get back to Simon Sinek's question, how do we relate to people when we can't identify with them? To be honest with you, I've had a bunch of new patients this week, and some of them have asked me, not just the dumbest questions, but some of the most condescending and insulting questions I've ever heard. It's at these moments when you have to make a decision. Am I going to correct the patient, or am I going to lead the patient? Believe me, I don't enjoy being asked, so you don't believe in doing the whole back? You mean moving every vertebra whether it needs it or not? I asked for clarification. Yeah, you don't believe in that? How would you answer? What would you say to that? Do you correct them, put them in their place, or do you lead them? I proceeded to explain the difference between subluxation and compensation. I explained for as much benefit as can come from adjusting subluxations, there's an equal amount of harm that can be done by manipulating compensations. Many chiropractors fail to take note of one versus the other. That means they're being lazy and careless with your spine. I don't do that because I don't wanna practice that way. I want to know that what I'm doing will help you. I won't say that it's always easy, but I want to choose the path that will allow me to lead the patient to a higher level of understanding. I don't need to correct or shame them for asking a question. I started thinking about some of these questions, the ones we find most annoying and condescending. I realized they tend to come from a common root. Think Think about this with me from the patient's perspective for just a moment. If we begin with the false but highly popular premise that all chiropractors are the same, then the only difference between them is which techniques I, as the patient, prefer. So then in my mind, the best chiropractor is the one most willing and able to do what I prefer. Any conviction to do things the proper way will be viewed as weakness and inability. If good chiropractic is all about my preferences, then shouldn't every chiropractor want to accommodate me and give me what I want? If that's true, then I'm helping them by telling them what I want them to do and how I want them to do it. This ridiculous line of reasoning all begins with the false premise that all chiropractors are the same or equal. I can't think of any profession where all all practitioners are the same or equal. Why would chiropractic be any different? That's why I always go back to that original premise and I try to convince them that there must be a correct way to fix something, which immediately implies that there must also be a wrong way. Let's do it the right way and let the results speak for themselves. The need to lead patients is is a decision we have to make every day. Another patient says to me, I've been seeing a chiropractor for 50 years. Oh, I respond, maybe I should be having you adjust me. Oh, I don't know how to do your job, she says, while simultaneously telling me how to do my job. (laughs) Welcome to chiropractic, where you'll be insulted and you'll be condescended to. (laughs) Patients will refer to their medical doctor as the real doctor even when they have it all wrong. Are you gonna get mad or are you gonna lead them? That's the decision we all have to make and I wanna encourage you to choose to lead them. That's why I think leadership is so important for the future. I imagine we will need to answer more of these questions in the future as well. The public has become aware of chiropractic and many of them think they know a lot about it. Unfortunately, many of them have have been sold a false idea of what chiropractic is. We have to teach them about subluxation, compensation, why we adjust in the chair, why we adjust one side of the pelvis. I know these questions are exhausting, but we need to educate on these topics, and that means we need to lead our people to right conclusions. Our profession hasn't always done that well in the past, but we need to do it well from now on. Chiropractic is on the map. I hear chiropractic referenced on television more often now than I ever did in the past. Even Gonstead is on the map, and people are starting to ask for it by name. That means it's time for us to lead, whether we like it or not. I still remember being in my first year at LACC. I had this habit of reading green books during my lectures. (laughs) I believe I was reading the book Evolution or Revolution. I highly recommend it, by the way. I suddenly had an epiphany. I stopped reading, and I said out loud in my mind, I don't want to be a charlatan. In that moment, I experienced such a profound paradigm shift that I immediately recognized it was going to make me counterculture and I was gonna have to lead people in a direction they probably didn't want to go. I guess I was half right. There are people who are so stuck in their ways that they don't want to go there, but I discovered that there were also a lot of people who were looking for something different, and I had answers for them. I simply had to find my tribe, and then there were those who were interested in chiropractic, but they saw it through a medical lens. Those people need to be led, and it isn't always easy. We must become better leaders as we move into the future. If you're interested in learning more about leadership, I do recommend Simon Sinek's books and YouTube videos. I also recommend John Maxwell's books and podcasts. Those are both good resources for learning to think and act like a leader. Times are changing, and that means we must be willing and able to adapt. Good leadership ability hasn't always been demanded of us, but I believe it will be in the future. For many years now, John Maxwell has taught that leadership is derived from character which means we need to make an effort to grow and develop our character. Over my lifetime, I've watched character erode in the marketplace and in healthcare to the point that it's nearly non-existent, and the powers that be actually legislate against it as they prefer to reward its absence and punish its existence. It will be up to us to change those things as well, but it all starts inside each of us as individuals. Character, virtue, and values are all things we talk about regularly on this podcast, and this is the reason why. Some generations were not trained for these things, but we will all need them moving forward. I found that it's just as difficult to work on a team if you're the highest member as it is if you are the lowest member. If you're talented and skilled at something, you might think it would be fun to work with a less talented team and help to bring them up to your level. It's not. If you're not very talented at something, you might think it'd be fun to join a group of highly talented people so you can rise to their level. Again, it's not. The best is to find people at your level and work with them. It will raise your level and you'll eventually need a different group. This is why most teams from sports to bands to companies don't last forever. Eventually a change is needed or the team will regress. Some individuals improve rapidly while others will never improve over the course of their career. This means all teams are limited by time. I have a riddle for you that I recently heard. Five frogs are sitting on a log. Three frogs decide to jump into the water. How many frogs are sitting on the log? The answer is five. That's because deciding to do something does not actually change anything. Making a decision is an important, even a vital part of the process, but nothing actually happens until you take action. This gap between making a decision and actually taking action on that decision is the gap that determines who's successful and who's not. Now I know people, and I mean this as kindly as possible, who have achieved a level of success that far exceeds their intelligence level, and they've done it by being quick to take action. In some cases, they did what nobody else would because they were too dumb to know it couldn't be done, so they just did it. This isn't meant to be an insult, but an acknowledgement that we tend to overestimate the power of decisions and we tend to underestimate the power of taking action. And even blind and uninformed action sometimes. I'm not encouraging you to take blind, uninformed action, but I'd like to create in you a conviction that when you make a necessary decision, you must turn that decision into action. Otherwise, the decision is wasted as though it never even happened. In his early days, long before his meteoric rise to fame, Jordan Peterson did some research that resulted in him giving young people the sage, but often rejected advice that they should find a hierarchy and get in it. Before I explain the rationale for this, let me give you a little background information. We live in a society with a dominant political philosophy, whether dominant by vote or sheer force, that says all hierarchies are bad because those at the top will always oppress those beneath them. The evidence, of course, shows that hierarchies are rarely oppressive, but are more likely to create the greatest good for everyone. The problem is that hierarchies demand work from everyone, but those at the bottom only stay there when they refuse to work, and being unaccepting of the consequences and their lack of production, they claim oppression to avoid the consequences of their laziness. Nonetheless, when we separate ourselves from the dialogue, we can take an honest look. The intent of a hierarchy is that over the course of your life, you will move up the hierarchy. The only way you don't move up is if you have a catastrophic flaw. Of course, the hierarchy enables you to spot this flaw much earlier so it can be corrected and you can continue to move up. In contrast, the movement to abolish hierarchies seeks to put all people on equal footing in the name of equality and equity. The consequence, which social scientists accurately predicted, is a rise in suicide rates. Without a hierarchy, people have no way of accurately assessing themselves in comparison to their peers. In a hierarchy, the vast majority will have some people above them and some people below them. This gives you an accurate assessment of how much you have come up, but also where you need to go to continue to rise. Without that, people become aimless. They also tend to either overestimate themselves or underestimate themselves. In either case, we're left with horrible inaccuracy in regards to our self-assessment. Seeing that lack of hierarchies led to a dramatic rise in suicide is what led Jordan Peterson to recommend to all young people that they find a hierarchy and get in it. One final point in favor of hierarchies is that if I want to be at the top of the hierarchy, I can't put myself there. The only way for me to be at the top of the hierarchy is for the rest of the hierarchy to put me there, which means that you have power over the hierarchy even if you're at the very bottom of the hierarchy. It may not be much power, but it's still more power than you might have otherwise. I think it's fair to say that within the Gonstead community, we have the beginnings of a hierarchy, but not a well-established one. It seems the common currency that's used to establish hierarchical superiority within the community is years in practice, but that's an insufficient standard. During my time on campus at Life University, I saw many people come on campus touting their years in Gonstead practice as their evidence of mastery. Among that group, I saw good chiropractors who were terrible teachers. I saw good teachers who were terrible chiropractors. It was extremely rare that I ever saw a good chiropractor who was also a good teacher. This is not a criticism, but merely an observation. An observation that an effective hierarchy must ignore time and practice and look only at accomplishment and results. I'm also not suggesting that the chiropractor who makes the most money should be at the top of the hierarchy either. That would also be a terrible idea. At the same time, it's an obvious observation that whoever's at the top of the hierarchy probably would be an older doc with many years of experience and accomplishment. This means that there's virtually no chance that the person on top would be a young person with a little bit of experience. If we think back to Simon Sinek's critique that the entitled generation is really just impatient, then we can see that this impatience is what causes the younger generation to reject the hierarchy and maintain the illusion that they can move up the chain faster than they probably should. In the meantime, there are people in the middle of the hierarchy who have been lazy or sloppy or what have you, and they too reject the hierarchy when they realize that time has passed but they've not moved up to the level equal to their ego. These are the reasons why hierarchies are commonly rejected. But this does not remove us from the fact that hierarchies make us better because they clearly show us where we are, where we need to go, and the pathway to get there. This weekend, I was with Dr. Wood, and we were setting up on ilium moves on the knee-chest table. He suggested I relax my adjusting arm. I've always locked my adjusting arm so I can use my body weight and save some energy. It took a little mental discipline to do it, but when I changed the tension and relaxed my arm, I totally changed my feel for the adjustment, and it relaxed the patient as well. In an instant, my 22 years of experience were meaningless. He just showed me how to do the adjustment better in a way I hadn't considered and wasn't entirely cognizant of what I was doing. There's always something to learn and something to improve. As long as you're doing that, you're moving up the hierarchy. That only happens when you know who to learn from and the hierarchy tells you that as well. I've been learning from Dr. Wood since the late 90s, and I still am. Please don't reject the hierarchy, what little there is, but use it to learn and motivate and perfect what you do. Well, I hope you found this helpful today. Before we go, I want to talk to you about something I've been working on. Over the last few months, I've gotten many emails from people all around the world. It seems that many of them are practicing Gonstead to the best of their ability but they feel stuck on an island isolated by themselves and unsure of the way forward. I fear the ones I've heard from may only be scratching the surface of how many people are actually struggling with this. We've been working on a way to create a coaching program, for lack of a better word, to help people feel connected and engaged. Because of the day and age that we live in, this is something that we can actually do for anybody, no matter where you live. As we're just beginning to put this together, here's how you can help me. If you'd be interested in something like this, send me an email at the1505club at gmail.com and let me know if you would be more interested in one-on-one coaching or group coaching with a group of three to five people that you can be paired with to have some camaraderie. Also, let me know what your biggest challenge is now that it's keeping you from moving forward. This isn't really intended for students, but whether you're in your first few years trying to build a solid foundation or you've been doing it for a while and looking to get to the next level, I want to hear from you and see if there's anything we can do to help you out. I look forward to hearing from you, so please let me know what we can do to help. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.